Well, what a treat and blast it was for me to catch up with Fox's Chris Broussard. You hear him nightly on the radio on The Odd Couple. Chris and I share some history, having both worked at ESPN in our past. And over the course of my conversation with Chris, a conversation we had a few months ago that because of the pandemic and everything else, we've uh, had to push back the release of this. Um, But there's two things that really jump out to me in our conversation. And number one is just the courage to stand. The courage to really stand up for what you believe. When I think of Chris Broussard through his years at ESPN at Fox, as we've seen him grow as a media personality on the radio and on television, that's what I've always admired about him was just his ability to to stand and to stand on truth and be willing to do so, even as many arrows have been flung his way. And the other was a, just a great conversation, I think, about sacrifice and freedom, right? I think many of us as, as Christians out there, I think especially early on in our faith, we think, oh man, I've got to sacrifice so much and I've got to sacrifice this life choice and I've got to sacrifice this friendship or I've got to sacrifice you know, some of the things that I really enjoy doing. And at first we feel like, oh man, what a sacrifice and it's going to be so much to give up. I think what we realize in the months, in the years ahead in our journey of our faith is there's actually so much freedom, that that sacrifice has actually provided so much freedom in our walk and that the Lord knows, obviously, what he's doing in the freedom we feel in freeing ourselves up from much of those previous life choices. Those are a couple of things you'll learn and a whole bunch more as we had the opportunity to sit down and chat with Chris Broussard. I got your wiki profile right in front of me here, man. I got your, uh, your life. You your... know Wikipedia is very <laughs> shaky. I, I actually changed it myself. Okay. They had me as half Jewish. They had me being born in Houston, (laughs) neither of which is anything anywhere close to the truth. (laughs) Houston and Baton Rouge aren't the same. I've always liked those together. I guess to some people it is because that's what they had. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Uh, And actually, you know what? My great, great, great grandfather, perhaps. Or it might be another great on there is Jewish. Was was Jewish? Clofet Strauss. Interesting. But that's about it. I don't think that makes me half Jewish. No, but you were where? Born in Baton Rouge, <laughs> born right? In Baton Rouge. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, I was born there. All my family is from Louisiana. I'm Creole, which is a mixture of African and French, or perhaps Spanish. Um, but my father's side is Creole, so that's where the French last name comes from, Broussard. Mm-hmm. So they actually, they have a town named Broussard in Louisiana. They have streets named Broussard. There's a restaurant in the French Quarter called Broussard's that, uh, believe it or not, my parents went to Xavier University in New Orleans, and my father could not even attend Broussard's restaurant when he was in college because it was segregated. And uh, it was a white group of Broussards. And so he couldn't even go there. But my whole family is, you know, rooted in Louisiana. So I was born in Baton Rouge. But we moved from there when I was, I mean, five, six months old. So I I don't remember any of it. But we moved from there to Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And we would go back every summer, though, to visit uh, our family and, and friends we had down in Louisiana. So... I'm very familiar with it, and that's, like I said, that's my roots. There seems to be so much pride in that area, though, Chris. And, and obviously, 
this podcast right now, we're taping in 2020, and just a few months ago, their football team down south won the biggest yes. title in college football, and there seems to be so much just pride in some of the character, some of the history that resonates out of the folks in Louisiana, and, and especially that Creole community. Why? Yeah, it's a rich culture, um, you know, and I think just that the uniqueness of the culture as far as Creoles, I think, is where that pride stems from, because obviously they're they're not white, they're black. But the Creole black culture is different from your typical African-American cultural experience. Um, so I think that, you know, you speak French. Uh, my grandparents first language was French. Uh, my father's first language actually as a boy, a tiny boy was French. Mm. But when he moved to Ohio and uh, he grew up in Cincinnati, he uh, he for, you know, he forgot it because he wasn't speaking it. But I and I didn't grow up Creole in terms of a Creole experience. Um, I grew up in the Midwest. I moved around a lot. I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana. Syracuse, New York, Des Moines, Iowa, (laughs) and then Cleveland, Ohio. I finished high school in Cleveland. So I lived in all of those places before I graduated from high school. So you're really a Midwest kid in many ways. Was it it a a faith-based home? Was it a Christian-based home in that Midwest that you grew up in? Interesting question. My, my, I grew up Catholic and that's, again, that's the Creole heritage. Um, So I grew up Catholic and my father, believe it or not, actually studied to be a priest, a Catholic priest. So he went to uh, he went to high school for two years. He went to seminary hmm. in Cincinnati and his experience. Um, I keep bringing up racial experiences, but it is what it is. So he was at he was one of maybe maybe three African-American boys at the seminary of, of maybe 150 to 200 students. And one day he had been there for close to two years and, you know, popular, played on the sports teams and had a lot of friends and everything. And one day uh, a younger guy who didn't know him asked him why he was so dark. And he's not very dark. He's just slightly darker than me. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, my dad said, well, maybe it's because I'm colored, you know, like that's the term they used back then. And he said that afternoon and going forward, Everybody, most people were shunning him, you know, as far as at lunch, you know, friends that he had, he, they'd be having a conversation. He'd go up, you know, go up to him and they kind of stop talking or walk away. And he mm. was just getting the cold shoulder, even from some uh, administrators and, and teachers. And so after that, that went on for a couple of weeks. And then he, uh, he told his parents he was living on campus. So they were living at the seminary. His parents went to came up to see him and he told him what was going on. He's, you know, he's upset. He's crying. Mm. And his dad said, my grandfather said, everybody's not meant to be Jackie Robinson. Come on home, son. And that ended my dad's pursuit of the priesthood. And I'm I'm thankful for that, because if you know anything about Catholic priests, they're celibate, so I wouldn't even be here. So <laughs> I, um, I'm, the Lord works what they say. Lord works yeah. in mysterious ways. But yeah. so we were raised Catholic, and it was devout in terms of we went to church every Sunday. I went to Catholic schools from second grade through high school, but I didn't know anything about biblical Christianity. You know, 
I was I had religion classes every year and knew a lot of stories about Jesus and the apostles and the Beatitudes and so on and so forth, but never read the Bible myself, never knew anything about having a personal relationship with Christ. Um, and so I don't think I, I believe I was a nominal Christian, but really I, I don't I would don't consider that I was a believer. And uh, so it was it wasn't until my senior senior year in college that I gave my life to Christ and, and in my view, became a Christian. And so. Um, and that was at Oberlin College? That was at Oberlin Where College. Where you were the hoop star, right? I mean, you well, were just the I was baller. The you team. were big I was, man I was a on star campus. <laughs> Not a star. I was a starter. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and, and Oberlin is one of the. Now, it's, Oberlin's interesting. I'm not sure if you know the history of Oberlin I College. I don't. Oh. Okay, Charles Finney, who you may know was a tremendous evangelist uh-huh. back in, I believe, the 19th century, was one of the major figures in the history of Oberlin College. They The big chapel on, or a big hall, performing hall on campus was called Finney Chapel. Um, and Oberlin was the first American college to admit African-Americans. Hmm. It was the first to admit women. Uh, so it has this great history, but it, I don't know when, but by the time I got there in the 1980s, it was ultra liberal and ter- socially liberal. Like it was, mm-hmm. and if, even now, way, way more so. So um, it was just a bastion of anything goes, really. Mm-hmm. But in the midst of that environment, uh, that's where I became a Christian. And um, so, yeah, how? God, God got me there. Yeah, how? T- t- tell me and take me I'll down try that to path. Give, you know, I've given whole sermons on my <laughs> testimony, so okay. I'm going to I'm gonna give you the condensed version. I have it all laid out, my testimony, lessons, four lessons you've shared, you can oh, take. Oh, you've shared a few times, have yes, you? Yes, <laughs> four lessons you can take from my testimony. I can do it. I can make it out to an hour or oh, so, oh, but oh. Uh, I'm going to give you the condensed version. <laughs> Basically, my sophomore year in college, I started dating a girl. Uh, a lot of times, you know, Brock, we we come to the Lord through women. And um, I started dating a girl who was a born-again Christian. And I knew her. We were f- somewhat, I don't even know if I'd say friends. We were acquaintances and friendly. We had, had some classes together. But she be- she became a Christian her sophomore year at Oberlin. She was two years older than me. She was a senior. And she was known as a Christian because, you know, you know what goes on on college campuses. She wasn't really getting involved in a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. because she was living for Christ. And so we started dating and she was really the first person that I was close to who really introduced me to biblical Christianity. So she would want to pray. And I was open, you know, I mean, I grew up Catholic and I prayed most nights, but when we would pray, I noticed a difference in that she was praying like she knew who she was praying to, like, like she was praying to a father or a friend or, you know, a brother or something, you know, she just, it was personal. And all I could say were memorized prayers, like our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, or hail Mary full of grace, the Lord is with thee, bless thy, like, I just knew my memorized prayers from growing up Catholic. So that, that, um, I noticed that and that intrigued me. And then I went to a few Bible studies with her on campus. And, um, so she kind of brought me into that environment, but it was a struggle in that I really wasn't trying to give my life to Christ. I wasn't Mm -hmm. trying to live as a Christian. I didn't know any real, I didn't know any guys on campus who really 
were living for Christ. I knew guys who went to church, but as far as really trying to live that lifestyle, I didn't mm-hmm. know any. And I, my friends certainly weren't. And so we had this constant struggle, even though it was a great relationship. It was a struggle in that she was trying to live for the Lord and I was not. And so um, one I went to church with her a few times. And after dating for about a year, we went to a church in Cleveland. She because she was by this time, she had graduated and gone to medical school in Cleveland, where mm. uh, Case Western Reserve Medical School. So that was maybe an hour from Oberlin. So I went to church with her one Sunday in Cleveland and the it was a guest minister and he talked, he gave his testimony, he talked about how he had been addicted to drugs and gave his life to Christ. And, you know, it changed everything. And, um, and it just, for some reason, being in that environment that, you know, the praise and worship was very lively. I had never been in a church like that where people were excited to go to church, you know, where it was, people were it was like, it, they were, they looked happy. I was used to solemn Catholic services where I'm just counting the minutes till we can get out of there. And um, so all of that struck me and that environment really just ministered to me. And for the first time in my life, I really felt like, you know, I needed to give my life to the Lord. And uh, I knew Mm. that I just, my lifestyle, I wasn't a gangster or drug dealer or even a drug user, none of that. But, you know, I was living a lifestyle that I knew was sinful just from what I knew even I knew I was even breaking the Ten Commandments that we were taught so so much as a Catholic, and I was just, you know, not really trying to live. Uh, You're just living for yourself. Life. Yeah, just I was for living yourself. for myself. Um, you know, getting drunk a lot, um, getting involved in sexual immorality and things like that. And so, um, so the preacher gives his altar call, and I knew I needed to go down and get give my life to Christ. I felt like everybody in the church was pointing at me. Like, hey, you, you, you need to go down. And I didn't want to, and I didn't. I was actually, literally, I was actually praying there, Lord, please don't let this guy come and take me out of my seat and bring me down. Like, I really was praying that. But when I left the church, I knew. I didn't give my life to Christ, but I knew that I needed to. Mm. And so I kept running over the next several months, like looking for every loophole to not give my life to Christ. And things were going well. God was blessing me. That's when I had my first summer internship as a sports writer at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And uh, they told me after the summer or my internship was over, they were going to hire me when I graduated. So I had everything going for me, but I felt miserable. I was like, man, I got, I have the American dream in the palm of my hand. Like I'm about to get it. You know, this is what I was taught that my life was all about. Grow up, go, Chris, go to school, get good grades so you can go to a good college. Do well in college so you can get a good job. And now here, I, that was the purpose of life that I was taught. And so now I had that within my reach and I felt like, is this all there is to life? Mm. Like, I got this now. This is it. And so I felt miserable inside. And I kept running, running from the Lord, trying to look at Every, do everything but give my life to Christ. Hmm. And um, finally, basically, God just broke me down. And it was it was like, I'm either going to keep running from the Lord. This was after a period of about six months. I'm either going to keep running from the Lord and be miserable, or I'm going to give my life to Christ and get some peace and some joy. Hmm. And so, believe it or not, my 21st birthday, which is actually my, that was October 28th, um, instead of, you know, how you make a wish over the cake, 
instead of making a wish over the cake, I actually gave my life to Christ. Mm. And uh, so my 20, my natural birthday is actually my spiritual birthday mm. too. So um, that was almost 30, that was 30, 30 years ago. And did that doctor in training hang around? Was she patient yes, with you? Yes, in fact, oh, she's Mrs. Lester. Crystal Broussard. Oh, I, lo- I love it when those stories come full circle like that. <laughs> Sometimes I forget to mention that. People are like, so what happened to the girl? What happened to the girl? But yeah, we got married. We've been married now 25, uh, let's see. Wow. It'll be 25 years in June. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so. wow, wow. So you never played um, your, or at 21, did you still have eligibility left? Or, yes, that was actually right in the middle of my senior year. It was right in the middle yep. of your senior year. Yeah. And was there a change? Is this is a faith and sports podcast, right? This is a crossroads of those two things? That's a great question because there are, I've heard both ways. You know, there are, I know guys who've gotten saved. I have a good friend who was a, a college all American or high school all American, went to a Division I school, big time school, and became a Christian, you know. During his mm-hmm. like maybe his sophomore, I think maybe he was in freshman year, and he lost that aggressiveness mm. that he had that edge that he had always played with, and you know he 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 was okay, but he he never ended up like going pro or anything. But he kind of lost that aggressiveness and that edge. And then there are others who I've heard of who, when they became Christians, mm. they actually gained more of an edge, and you know what I mean. So yeah. that's a great question for me. Um, I, you know, I was so young in the Lord, man, that yeah. I, I, I had times, and I would say it this way, you know, being a guy who was young in the Lord, didn't really know much. I had time, like for me, it actually made me better in that I was, I was a guy that thought a lot. And sometimes, you know how in sports we say you think too much, don't overthink it, or you don't want, you don't want to be out there thinking too much, right? You want to play off instinct. And sometimes I would think too much. And so um, that allowed me, when I gave my life to the Lord, it actually allowed me to just trust in him more when I was on the court. I used to call it playing in the spirit, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. where I would go out there and just not be worried about, you know, the, the, the stakes or, you know, I have to do this right or making a mistake or turnover or whatever. And so it was, it helped me become a better player. And that's true to this day. I mean, I, I don't really play that much anymore, but just I did keep playing a long time as an adult. Mm-hmm. And it did help me um, in that regard. So for me, yeah, it, it, it got me out of my own head, kind of, so to speak. Um, and again, I've talked to athletes who have experienced, you know, that they've benefited from it mm-hmm. in their game. And some who felt like, yeah, I just kind of, lost my edge or, you know, some played for, we've heard, I think even Mike Tyson and others have said they all, they kind of played or were athletes for the wrong reasons. You know, they were trying to fulfill some void in them uh, that they, that was there for, for whatever reason. And when they, you know, gave their life to Christ and that void was filled, they no longer needed sports to do that. You know what I mean? So it, it, it differs. 
Yeah, I was never an athlete that overthought. That was really. <laughs> <laughs> That's a blessing. No, I'm, I'm messing with you. That was my entire life, oh. and it's still my life. And it's why I think I do this broadcasting thing because it's a. You know what I'm saying. Uh, I know Brock, exactly you know what, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no question about it, Chris. You know, this is where I think it gets fascinating for me because here you're going to be one of the first, I think, in these three years of doing a bunch of these different podcasts, you know, who, who is really then, you know, you dive into covering these sports, you dive into covering these players. And in basketball, Chris, as much as anything, and you dive into relationship with them. When I think Chris Broussard, right, and and I've known you for a while, and I've admired you, and I've sent you many texts through the years of just your courage to carry out your faith, to walk your faith in this different environment, and in that environment in the NBA especially. And I guess that's what I want to jump to here, of how you have navigated all these relationships through the years. And maybe those early years as a sports writer helped solidify that and helped give you some of the foundation to do it. Yep. But how have you navigated these waters? How did the Lord take you into those NBA waters, into those locker rooms, into those relationships, into some of the challenge required in navigating those relationships? Did that begin right there at the Cleveland Plain Dealer right out of college? Well, right out of college, I was actually covering high school sports for four years. And then uh, I actually left the plane dealer and went to the Akron Beacon Journal in 1990, late in 1994. And about six months after I went to the Beacon Journal, they started putting me on pro sports. So I covered the Cleveland Indians. I was like the second writer for the Mm -hmm. Indians. So kind of backing up the beat writer. But that was actually a great season. Um, that I did it. I did it for maybe five months of the, or four months of the season with them. And in 95, that was a the year they went to the World Series. They lost and I believe it was six games to the Atlanta Braves. Mm-hmm. And so I was with them throughout that. And then after that, like that season, uh, they promoted me to covering the NBA. So that was my first big break. And as far as, you know, even somewhat similar to sports, like my – I guess I was, you know, the Bible talks about dying to yourself and dying to your sin and certain things. I didn't put too much pressure on myself to, you know, you know, get like just to the pressure of being a beat writer for an NBA team, the pressure of being on deadline. I had kind of died to that worldly success. Like I obviously I wanted to do well and be successful, But that wasn't my ultimate focus. My ultimate focus was on being the best man of God I could be, which allowed me to really be free in covering the team. And so I didn't put too much pressure on myself. Mm. And that I think that helped me do a better job uh, at my job. As far as my relationships with players, it's interesting because you know, as in in any sport and in life, I mean, I think the NBA is as far as Christians is made up kind of like the rest of society. Like you have some Christians, you have some who aren't. And um, one thing is obviously the NBA is largely African-American, about 75%. And most, it's certainly 20, this was almost 30 years ago, most African-Americans, and it's still probably true today, it's, it's lessening, but it's still true. Most grow up in the church. And so whether they're actually a Christian or not or living as a Christian, they've grown up in that environment. You know, all the surveys show that African-Americans are the most churched, you know, demographic in the country. And so that made me 
very, you know, my lifestyle and, and what I was about familiar to a lot of the players. So it wasn't some something strange or something odd that they hadn't experienced. Um, so I think that helped that I was actually it's a, it's an interesting story. So, you know, that before every game, they have pregame chapel mm-hmm. only for like, you know, 10 minutes and both teams can go. And so when I was covering the Cleveland Cavaliers, I would go to chapel. And um, most times I would go, you know, most times, not all every single time, because uh, I might be tied up doing some work or something. But I would go and it was fine. I mean, it was, you know, I was just part of the chapel and that was that it was no big deal. So then in 1998, I move on to the Caval- to the new to, to New York and I cover the Nets for the New York Times and I go to chapel. And again, no big deal. Nothing. Then I start covering the Knicks after th- two years, I think two or three years. Mm-hmm. I start covering the Knicks and obviously New York, the media um, center of the country, if not the world. And, you know, it's really competitive and intense and the beat writers are competing with each other. And you got several papers, newspapers competing. And so, again, I go to chapel. I'm thinking, you know, I'm just going to chapel and it's normal. Nothing, you know, nothing's going on strange. And some of the beat writers began complaining about me going to chapel Mm. because they said, I was getting some of them said I was getting an unfair advantage by, you know, seeing the players in chapel and all that. And others thought I was only doing it to get an unfair advantage and which was both whatever the case. It was completely ridiculous because I'm sure you've been to some of the chapels. It's we're not in there getting scoops. okay? (laughs) you're in there and it's just strictly about God and you know the the leader of the chapel gives a little lesson the ones I've been to it weren't even really interactive it was mainly just you know mm-hmm. the the guy leading the chapel and the players are, or my myself and other players are just sitting there listening but there was no you know you know it, it was I mean it, it was no extra advantage either and I also told the writers I was like look you could come too I actually would love for you to come. Why don't you come and see what it's about? So that was, it was interesting because that was the first time it became quote unquote controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as relationships with players, it's never hindered me. Obviously players who are Christian, it's actually been a little bit of a bond that we've been able to have. And I, but I will say this, like, you know, a lot of writers, you know, they talk with players about women and, you know, just stuff, you know, who you may be sleeping with, who you, you know, just groupies and all that. And I've never done that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just, you know, some people could, you know, that could give a writer an advantage or a way to get in and have a great relationship with a player. If you're talking about all oh, this going to strip clubs and, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. And I've never, I mean, I've never gone obviously to places like that with players, but even talked with them about stuff like that. So, um, and I know writers who have hung out with players in turn in those mm-hmm. circumstances. So in that way, I, you could argue maybe it it took away a little of or put me at a little bit of a disadvantage with some players. But um, whatever the case, obviously God has blessed me, and I've been able to to do a good job with it. So um, 
it's worked out. How did that unfold? So you walk in in your career here, right? From a from a writer, from a beat writer, uh, in, a, in a number of different papers. Was it from your experience with the Knicks at the door at ESPN then opened? Yes, um, it was. It was funny because when I first started covering the league, and I was in Cleveland. I mean, I would go to games in jeans and rugby shirts and Jordan sneakers and, you know, just and it wasn't I didn't stand. I mean, the other writers would wear jeans. You know, it's just that's how I was. And I noticed whenever we cover like had a game in New York or the Knicks came to Cleveland or whatever, that their beat writers were always dressed up. Mm. And so when the new like in a suit and tie or sports coat and tie. And so when the New York Times interviewed me. I asked him, I said, do you guys have a dress code? Like, do you require? Because I noticed, you know, writers in New York are dressed up. And they were like, no, but what people recognize is that, you know, there's television opportunities here. Mm. Um, and so, and this was in the late 90s. So that's why a lot of guys dress up. So when I started covering, you know, working for the New York Times, I did start dressing up when I went to games and wearing a suit and tie or, or a sports coat and tie. And sure enough, you know, TV opportunities began coming initially on the local level, just New Jersey and then uh, in New York. And then ESPN began having me on, you know, uh, their different shows. I wasn't working for ESPN, but they'd have me on as a reporter for The New York Times to talk about the NBA. And then in 2004, after six years at The Times, mm. that's when ESPN, the magazine hired me. Mm. And they hired me strictly as a writer, but they said, look, we like you on TV. We've seen you. You've done a lot of stuff for ESPN. You'll continue. We'll continue to have you do television, but there was no like set amount of days or anything mm -hmm. like that. But over the years, and I was at ESPN for 12 years, it just, I eventually just kind of did start doing more and more and more television. And the more television I was doing, the less time I had to go and spend time with players as far as working on a feature story and all that. So I eventually just kind of morphed totally into a television uh, personality mm. and reporter. And now at Fox Sports, I went to Fox Sports in 2016. And uh, since I've been here, I haven't written a word. So I don't now I'm strictly a broadcaster on television. Now you couldn't even write, radio. could you? I mean, I, I don't... know. I, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't, man, try to have me write a game story. It'd be an ugly sight right now. <laughs> I'll give you a, uh, I'll give you a John Sawatsky question. Cause I'm oh, sure man. you said in those John. I haven't heard John, that name in a while. I love that man. He was, <laughs> he was a huge Seahawk fan. So whenever I was back there doing TV, his office was always by the entrance and John Swatsky was, uh, was you know, for, for those that have never heard that name, and I would mention him on my local radio show, and my co-host would look at me like, you are such a buffoon. Nobody <laughs> knows John Swatsky, right? Only you do. So why don't you tell everybody yet again who he was? But he was an amazing man that really taught many of us, I think, how to ask questions or challenged yes. some of our beliefs in how to ask questions. So I will give you a Swatsky question, and I'll keep it very open-ended. How would you characterize, Chris, your 12 years in that journey at ESPN? Well, the first word that comes to mind is great. You know, I really enjoyed it. Um, I got to do all manner of things. Like like I said, I started out as a magazine writer for ESPN the Magazine. And that was a tremendous experience. In fact, I would say my greatest experience in my career, not my most, you know, notable or 
or, you know, biggest or or the thing I drew the most accolades for. Mm-hmm. But my greatest experience was we did a series where this is when, remember, in the mid early 2000s, Team USA, our, our U- United States basketball team with the professionals was losing in international competition. Mm-hmm. They finished fourth in 2004 in the Olympics and LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony and all these guys were on the team. I'm sorry, they finished third. They, they won the bronze. And um, 2006 World Games, they, they finished third again. And so we did a big series on how players are being developed in basketball on different continents. Mm. So one writer, I believe it was Rick Buecher, uh, who many have heard of, he went to, we sent him to Asia. One writer stayed here in America. One writer went to South America. One went to Europe. Uh, I went to Africa. Hmm. And so I got to go to Senegal and I spent about three weeks there. And being an African-American, going back to Africa for me was a great experience because I'm a person that does study a lot of African history and African-American history. So for me, going back there and being on the in, on the continent was just a tremendous experience um, in, 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 in many ways, culturally, but also even just basketball was great. And there were NBA guys over there. Masai Ujiri, who mm-hmm. is from Nigeria and become arguably the top executive in the NBA, the president now for the Toronto Raptors. Uh, he was there. I met him there. Um, and so it was a great experience, but that was through ESPN the magazine. So then I did, you know, that's my first bit of radio as far as hosting shows came at ESPN. Um, obviously they began putting me on television on essentially a daily basis. And I did everything from read the teleprompter to be a reporter and give information to debating on first take with Skip Bayless. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just got so many different experiences. I was a reporter, you know, a sideline reporting. I reported on the ground, you know, like during the NBA lockouts and from New York City. And so I just had a great experience. Um, And I, yeah, I I have nothing negative to say about it. Um, For me, you know, I I decided to leave in 2016, as I said, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was nothing. It really would. The reason I left was because it was a different role. Like ESPN, made me an offer and they wanted to keep me as a reporter strictly doing sidelines and trying to break news and things like that. And Fox wanted me as a, a, an opinionist and mm. a commentator and, you know, a guy who would an, do analysis. So for instance, let's say LeBron James, he's not, but it's, if he were a free agent this summer, then at ESPN, I would have been one of those guys trying to break the news and chase where he's going and, and <laughs> every little, you know, manifestation of his recruitment and so on and so forth. And whereas here, I don't have to do any of that. I don't have to worry about that. And when but when he decides where he's going, I just give my opinion yeah. and I give my analysis of the situation and things like that. So I prefer that at this stage of my career. Um and so that's why I made the change. And so now I do a national radio show five days a week. And obviously I'm on television, you know, giving my opinion on, on various topics. So it's, it's a lot better in that regard. So I, I nothing negative to say about ESPN. 
but um, I love it here at Fox Sports. I'm thinking of Chris Broussard uh, that I have admired, as I said to you, from, from afar at times. I'm thinking of the Chris Broussard that sat in that pew in that church that day that knew, I mean, I have to, you know, I, I, this altar call is there, but you're praying like, uh-uh, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to run for the next six months until I finally give my life to you. I think of you, Chris, the number of different times on some social issues that, that have arisen over the years where you didn't run, right? Where you didn't hide, where you said, nope, this is my faith. This is what I believe. And, right. and even with your co-host now on a national level, right. you're paired with a guy <laughs> that I believe is 180 from you in many different ways. Um, and that's not from a judgmental manner. No, that's simply from the intro right. to your that's radio show. That's actually part of our shtick. Yeah. Right, right, I mean, right. you guys are the odd couple. You guys right. live your lives in very, very different ways. But you haven't run, Chris, from many of those, um, you know, kind of be it social conversations or um, social challenges, social issues, um, different things. Why? Why have you, in the face of much of that, and at times persecution for that, why have you not run? I think because one, and you know, you remember this when it was a fad uh, years ago, everybody was wearing the WWJD bracelet, right? And what would Jesus do? And one of the things, Brock, and I'm sure you, I know you've seen this too, society's painted this picture of Jesus that's really not accurate, soft, you know, timid. Never, yeah, timid. Oh, doesn't, no judgment. Doesn't speak yeah. right, right. In fact, this morning, Chris, uh, I, I meet with my men. I have a men's group, three other men. And we just read, been reading through the, the gospel of Luke, chapter by chapter. And like we stop and we pause like... <laughs> I like, mean, wow, Jesus did that. Right, right? Uh, exactly. Like he wasn't just this passive pushover right. hippie. Oh, I love right. everybody. And they, they crucified him for a reason. The mob crucified him for a reason because right. he was strong, because he was bold. So I'm sorry to interject, interrupt. No, but, but yes, even ahead. just again this morning is you just if you just <laughs> open up the word and you read those gospels, it is not the way. That I think our society, as you said, has many times characterized him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's the first thing is just, you know, as all believers, we try to be like Jesus. And so Jesus was bold. Jesus was fearless. Jesus was, you know, a man's man. And he didn't back down. Um, and as you know, you do it. I do it. We don't we're not throwing the Bible at people. We're on television rarely ever talking about, you know, the gospel and things like that. But when you're confronted with it, you know, you're you know, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in, because, again, that's what he did. So that's number one. Number two is that a lot of my heroes, you know, guys like Frederick Douglass, um, Harriet Tubman, she rose in her case. Um, they were bold. You know, one of my favorite speeches was Frederick Douglass on the 4th of July during slavery. He was free, but he is called uh, something to the effect of what does the 4th of July mean to the Negro? And so it's celebrating Independence Day while African-Americans are in slavery. And for him to have that courage to stand up and critique American society the way he did uh, and if you read the speech and I would encourage you to go read it, he actually, he was a Christian and he talked about how the Christianity he sees in America is a 180 to use your phrase from the Christianity he sees in the Bible. 
And he said so much that to love one is of necessity to hate the other. And so his boldness as a hero of mine, that made me bold. Like I don't Magic Johnson. I loved him as a kid. Michael Jordan. I loved him. Dr. J. You know, uh, OG, I, I was going to say O.J. Simpson, but you know, as, a, as a kid, he was a hero as a football player. But they were guys I looked up to as athletes, but they're not my heroes. My heroes were people, like I said, Frederick Douglass and others. And their courage, you know, I was like, man, if they could be courageous, even Martin Luther King, at a time where you're, it could cost you your life. How and fueled by Christ, led by the Holy Spirit that gave them that courage, then how could I not be, you know, uh, courageous? And so my thing is, number one, I'm trying to be like Jesus. Number two, I'm trying to be like my heroes. And so that is where I think uh, a lot of the boldness comes from. And I'll say this, Brock, because obviously we see the direction of our country um, and and it, I'm just going to keep it real. The country is essentially seems like it's trying to push Christians into the underground or to the periphery where it seems like it's a situation where if you hold to traditional biblical moral standards, you're in danger of being pushed out of society or out of mainstream society. And I do think we as Christians are partially to blame for that. Um, in that I think that American citizens need to see people that they admire for many reasons. They admire them because they're great athletes. They admire them because they're great lawyers, because they're great broadcaster, because they're great journalist, because they're great engineer, because they're great politician, whatever it may be, because their marriage is great. Like they need to see people they admire for other reasons. Wow. And that, that person's a Christian. I always looked up to him. I always thought he was so, you know, intelligent. I always thought he was such a great, you know, person of high character. Wow. He's a Christian. They need to see that so many of the people they look up to for various reasons are Christians. And if they did, then I think that would stem the tide of society trying to push us to the side or at least stop those who are trying to push us aside and show that Christians do have a value and bring a value to our society. So I think that we as Christians, again, not forcing it on people, not being a bull in a china shop. But when we when an opportunity does present itself, when we're asked the question about our faith or whatever it may be, that a door is open to share your faith or just that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. I think we do ourselves a disservice when we hide it. When we don't want to deal, talk about it, when you don't want to say anything about it, because ultimately, if we continue to be silent and people don't see mm. that we, you know, people I look up to have this faith, then we will be pushed to the periphery. And, um, you know, because now I think there's a narrative out there that society's put out there that the only people that are Christians are, you know, Racist whites, right wing rights, whites, ignorant uh, blacks and Hispanics who don't know any better hillbillies, you know, like just these these backwards people. 
And so um, we're allowing that narrative to play out when those of us who don't fit that stereotype refuse to to speak up just because we think we're saving ourselves some uh, some challenges or whatever. How do you do it, Chris? How have you done it amidst some of the persecution and some of the backlash you've 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 faced at times as, as you've come out and and been biblical and stated your biblical beliefs? How, how how do you do that on a on a daily basis in your in your work environment where you find yourself? There's Christians listening to this going, yeah, that's fine, Chris, that, that's great, you know, yeah, but you were with the Times and you have all of this success and you've you've been there and you've done it and that's easy for you to say. How how am I supposed to do that in this environment? How am I supposed to do that in my work environment? How am I supposed to, you know, how am I supposed to to grow where I've been planted here? When as you said, man, that feels so diminished and I can be persecuted and lose my job and and lose relationship. How do you do that? Right, right. I I think the first thing is having your priorities in order. Um, We're knowing that. And again, my testimony plays into this. I I wasn't rich. You heard me. I was 21. I I was promised a job. I didn't have it yet. But I, I had, in my view, the American dream right there. I had a good job promised to me. I, you know, I had everything else going for me and I wasn't fulfilled. I know that Christ is what fulfilled me. So to me, having all the money, having the great job, having the great house or whatever, without Christ, that's not enough. I could if I had my job now, I had the same exact career path now, but not Christ. I would not be fulfilled. I would not have peace. I would not have joy. And so for me, I'm. it's not worth me selling out to get a promotion or something because I know that promotion without God isn't going, I'm not going to be happy in that situation. So I think Mm. that's number one. Um, Number two is I think when we're in our work environment, because I do speak, a lot of people have asked me to speak about this, like how you maintain your faith in the work secular environment. I think there's a few things you have to do. One, you have to live it. So like, you you know, if you're talking, you know, you claim you're a Christian and people know you're a Christian and and maybe you've even, you know, spoken, whether it's publicly or just in the office, people know you don't agree with these certain lifestyles and things that people are doing. You you need to live it because, you know, Romans 2 says the word of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles, the non-believers because of the Jews, Jews disobedience. Mm -hmm. And so when we, when we claim to know God, but live a life that is ungodly, then we're, we lead others to mock God, mock the faith and blaspheme and think it's fake. I am convinced Brock that, and you're speaking about a situation with Jason Collins, you know, in 2013, when I was at ESPN, I'm convinced that if I had been up at ESPN sleeping around with the makeup girls and or at least hitting on them, you know, cheating on my wife, cussing, getting drunk with my co-workers and all that stuff goes on. Uh, I would have got fired. I think I would have got fired because I think ESPN would have viewed me as a bigot who uses his religion as a cloak for his prejudice rather than as a true person of faith who they may disagree with, Mm. but they were like, well, he's sincere. So that's number one. Number two, don't single out certain uh, sins that we just harp on, Mm. you know, um, and belittle other ones. Mm. 
And if you look at my pronouncements on television or whatever it may have been, I don't single out a sin. You know, I would I would call out. I I, I mentioned a number of sins. Uh, not that I'm perfect, but certainly I try to live to the biblical standard as best I can. And so you can't, you know, you're, you're ranting and raving about uh, abortion, but, you know, you're, you're laughing at adultery, you know, or you may even be committing adultery, you know, or you're mm-hmm. ranting and raving about, you know, something else and you're, you're, you're living in another type of sin. So oh. I think we have to be, you know, level across the board. And then I think thirdly is you have to do the best you can at your job. Now, you may not have the capabilities to be one of the best. You may or you may not, but it, work your do your best at your job. You know, we have to be, you know, on time. We have to work hard. You have a hard work, a great work ethic. You know, just do do a good job at your job because that makes you hard to replace. <laughs> I remember when Adrian Peterson <laughs> was at the top of his game and this is when, you know, there was the big controversy about same-sex marriage and he just flat out came out and said it. I I'm I, I'm against that. Like I don't I don't believe in that. That's not something I believe in. No pushback. None whatsoever, because <laughs> he was Adrian Peterson running for 2000 yards a year, you know, in a mm. season. And so, again, all of us can't be that great at our jobs. But if we work hard, do a good job, you know, don't give them any any work related reason to get rid of you, then that makes you that gives you some security as well. Even if they hey, I don't agree with his beliefs, but he's valuable to our company, you know? And so I think those are all things that, you know, and, and also, you know, we always think of sometimes the, the big sins that we shouldn't walk in, but as Christians, we also should, we should be kind. We should be compassionate. We should care about others' problems. We shouldn't be cutthroat. You know, I'm not going to step on another, a coworker to get where I got a good, you know, I mean, again, not that we're pushovers and pansies, but, you know, we don't go about our business in some of the negative ways that the world does when it comes to getting ahead. So I think all of those things, if we exude those qualities, those are ways that we can not only maintain our own faith, but be a light and a witness to others um, in the workplace. Above and beyond section of faith and sports subscribe to receive every episode at aboveandbeyondpodcast.com